Coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen, Chinese studios go for shares, Ang Lee's film gets a big slice, China and Hong Kong dominate the Golden Horse Awards, and we look at the films Triad and Life of Pi. This is East Screen West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. It is Wednesday, November 28th, 2012. As usual, I'm your host, recovering, uh, Paul Fox, and joining me as always from his super secret location right here in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello, everybody. Uh, Hi, Paul. How are you doing? Uh, Better. Uh, Since the last time we spoke, I've been through... uh, a bit more of a cold and a stomach flu, which was fun, uh, but uh, that laid me up for about three days and uh, made me not want to even consider ever thinking about food again. Uh, it's weird how the chemistry of your body can suddenly change like that when it gets a virus. But uh, feeling a lot better now, still having a bit of a cough, so I do apologize if I uh, unexpectedly cough. I've got my hand hovering over my cough button as I speak. Uh, but yeah, so far so good. Uh, still trying to catch up on a whole lot of work because I was out for that period and work just piled up and I'm still playing a little bit of catch up. But, uh, you know, since then we had uh, Thanksgiving come by, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, you know, so a lot of stuff has happened and uh, I'm just happy to be alive. Thankful. Yeah, you, you also missed the new uh, Steffi film. Oh, my God. You loved it. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's... Uh... I, I felt bad that I wasn't able to actually make it out. I was trying my best to uh, get some work done over the weekend. It just wasn't going to happen. Hmm. But, uh, but that's okay. You're, you're still going to catch up to it, right? Because this, well, this is Steffi doing cosplay. Yeah, I'm hopeful. Because uh, I was just, right before the show, I was actually looking at the showing times because, uh, you know, t- Thursday is new movie day, and it's also the day when they drop films. And mm-hmm. uh, it's got very few screening times. I think there's one time slot that I might be able to make on the coming Friday. If I don't make that, I may not get a chance to see it until it uh, hits video. But um, yeah, I'm going to try and catch that on Friday, so we'll talk about that uh, the next time for the next episode. But for this episode, we've got some stuff to talk about. Uh, what films are we going to be looking at? Uh, for East Screen, we'll be looking at Triad, the, the new film starring William Chan. And for West Screen, we'll be looking at Ang Lee's uh, Life of Pi. All right, all of that and much more coming up right after a little bit of news. All right, so uh, we got a little bit of news to cover this week, even though we've had a week off. Uh, a couple things have uh, caught our attention. Uh, up first, a uh, friend of the show and uh, partner of uh, Mr. Ma, uh, Marco Spomberg, uh, contacted me to tell me about a thing that's going on with uh, Google Plus, um, you know, apparently Google Plus is uh, having a little sort of mini film festival that's going to be going on, and uh, Mr. Spongberg's earlier film, Squatter Town, which we talked about, uh, oh, it seems like ages ago, um, 
is actually going to be uh, playing in this fest festival, and he's going to be involved in part of a Google Hangout talking about the film. So, Kevin, you have the details? That's right. Uh, the unofficial Google Plus Film Festival, uh, according to the official website, is an online, interactive, live, international short film festival. Um, essentially, the, the films will be screened, and the filmmakers uh, will go on Google Plus uh, Hangout uh, and talk with the, the audience live right after the, the screening of the film. So it starts on November 30th uh, at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. That's GM minus uh, 8 GMT. Um, and if you'd like to catch Squad of Town and then and, and interact with Mr. Spamberg, um, the film will play on Saturday morning, 9.30 a.m. Hong Kong time. And uh, Mr. Spamberg will be there uh, at the Google Hangout um, to answer your questions. Now, let me ask this. Is there a... Has there been an event created or, I mean, who exactly do you have to follow to um, you know, to find this particular event? Because usually you have to be following somebody um, to get uh, notified. I'm not entirely sure yet because, well, one, I'm not well-versed in Google+. Plus, But uh, there is an official website and the, uh, Paul, uh, the, the, the site right now is in the chat room. So, uh, Paul, you can uh, put up the link later, but I'll just read out. It's very easy to read out the, the URL anyway. It's www ugpff that's unofficial google plus film festival.com ugpff.com and you can see all the um you can see look at all the details there all right uh we'll try to post some links up in the show notes hopefully i'll get this episode up before saturday yes so that'll be I, I think the way it works is that is um how we how we do movie group is that they have a online event and i think if you rsvp if you join i think you can see it i think that's how it works all right so look for the event, look for the G Plus profile, and look forward to that, uh, I guess it's, what would you consider it, a mini online festival, and a Mr. Spomberg on Saturday morning. Next bit of news, uh, Grave Bandits, uh, the first transmedia campaign in Pinoy film history. So you have a bit more about this story for us, Kevin? Yes, just another uh, Hexagon Concepts uh, update. Um we have joined with the producers of the uh, Filipino um, zombie film, Grave Bandits, and we'll be, the company will be uh, launching a transmedia campaign for the film to extend the store universe uh, beyond the film. Um, the film will premiere as part of the New Wave section at the Manila Metro Film Festival Philippines uh, on December 18th, and there will be four screenings that weekend in Manila. Um, so if you're a listener that is in the guys in the philippines uh, or in manila specifically and to catch check check out the films um the the tickets are on sale now for those screenings uh and right after that we will be we will be launching the film's uh transmedia campaign we we have we have a we have a couple ideas about how to how to expand the film's universe but uh, of course all will be revealed once we kick off the campaign after the world premiere of the film all right so uh yeah check out the um the film's facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash the grave bandits. That's one word, the grave bandits, uh, for more details. Excellent. Look forward to that. All right. Uh, next bit of news. Uh, this one coming from The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, this uh, caught my eye. Uh, somebody had tweeted or retweeted, we retweeted the link uh, sometime earlier today, and it caught my eye. So this article is actually um, dated from today, uh, November 28th, and it is by. Uh, if I can say this correct, uh, Georg Salai, Sl 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 Sorry, if I said that wrong. 
Um, but uh, yeah, the, this is talking about uh, two state-owned Chinese movie studio studios are planning uh, IPOs, and uh, the article goes on to talk about um, these two Chinese film-based studios, both uh, uh, the Beijing-based China Film Company and the Shanghai-based Shanghai Film Group Company, um, are both applying for IPOs, which will, of course, require approval from the China Securities Regulatory Commission. And this is to get them on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So if you're a investor in the U.S. and you're looking for this to go up on uh, over on Wall Street, not going to happen there. Uh, this is going to be internal within China. Um, but that being said, I know that there are some there are lots of online services now that can uh, get you into the China market if you want to uh, play that particular game. Not that I'm recommending that at all. Um, it says the IPO proceeds would help raise cash for big budget releases and the acquisition of technology for 3D and other effects, uh, according to the paper. But it also said that critics feel that IPOs wouldn't necessarily boost audiences for homegrown movies as Chinese audiences prefer foreign films and their creative freedom. Um, do you have any thoughts on this, Kevin? Uh, well, they aren't the first Chinese film companies to be listed on the stock exchange anyway. Actually, Poly, Polybona um, or Beijing Polybona uh, and Huayi Brothers are already long have been on the stock exchange for a long time. Uh, but those, those are private companies. Yeah. Um, but essentially the same idea is that these these big companies, they, they expand. And also Raymond Wong's film company, Pegasus, uh, recently uh, got listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So um, as these film companies, um, Chinese film companies are, you know, getting on the, the stock exchange to raise capital for their films uh, as as um, budget budget continue to go up. Uh, in fact, the the the, the um, film that China film uh, in the article when they named China film was founded in 2010 has made such, such film as Flying Sword of Dragon Gate. It's kind of it, it, you know factually is right, but that film was more party boner than than than, mm. than China film anyway. But anyway, the the point is that yeah, it's it's not really news. It's, I guess the real news here is that it's two state owned quote unquote state owned film company um uh, taking that step. Um, yeah, so but... it it kind of leads to a further privatization of the Chinese film industry, which is you know good for the film market. I think. Which which you know again, that's what kind of caught my eye the fact that this is uh these are state owned movie studios yet they're moving more in sort of the you know capitalist direction looking for. Um, financiers through, you know, basically through stock, act, uh, you know, stock sales, and kind of makes me wonder who would who would take a risk to invest. I mean, movies are so hit and miss uh, as it is. I mean, a lot of times regular producers don't get their return back. So I find it interesting that that the state-owned companies are now looking to do this as if you know, like they're. This thing. reminds me of you know the old uh, the the old uh, what would they call it? the iron rice bowl you know when they when all the the manufacturing companies the state owned manufacturing companies got the mandate and said all right sorry we're we're cutting you off and now you have to become private and and make money on your own feels kind of all, along the same lines just makes me wonder who in their right mind would want to go this route in terms of investment it just doesn't seem like there would be uh, it's e e a safe long-term investment or even a safe short-term investment. Um, the, the article does go on to say something interesting. It says, Chinese politicians see a strong film industry at home as a way to add to the country's cultural power at a time uh, when it is already the world's second largest economy behind the U.S. Um, yeah, it, it's the, the thing is, 
in a free market, in a free market, complete free market, and we talk about film market, uh, the economy, complete free economy, yes, it might not be such a good idea. But China is still, the Chinese government especially, uh, it's starved. They're still very keen on protecting the local industry, um, including how China Film Group uh, tries to protect domestic films by by pitting, uh, pitting foreign films against each other, right. by creating protectionist period. So actually... Investing in film in a Chinese film industry is still fairly safe because because the government is still so they're very they're, they're very uh they're intent they're intent on letting it grow by protecting it. So um yeah. I mean, so it's well, not I bad. Mean, I can understand that aspect of it. I just don't see how it's going to function in you know from from the investor standpoint. I mean, it's one thing to say, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a producer and I'm gonna invest in your movie, and you know if the movie makes a certain gross, I'm gonna get my my investment back plus something um you know that that's sort of the the standard financial model as i understand it now you now you can of course have big companies you know you can have like a warner brothers or you know what what is it aol time warner i guess that's listed on the stock market and of course you can invest in that company but it's got so many different it's got its fingers everywhere so you're looking at lots of different industries and there's a greater chance i guess for being profitable and then of course as a shareholder you could get dividends and you could get you know the stock price can go up i don't see how they're going to work this here because it's state owned so like you said if the state is not doesn't want to lose face you know it's not you know it might cook the books or, or or do something to to make itself look good but at the same time how are they going to justify share prices if it's state owned it just seems weird to me it really does well, the thing that there's kind of a cultural thing here that, that I should add is that um, I remember a story about um, someone, a teacher told me why, why Peter Lamb, the owner of Media Asia Group, why he invests in Johnny Toe movies, even though they tend to they tend to be flops. And the reason is that because it takes him to film festivals. He can show up on a red carpet and, and, and get the spotlight and walk the red carpet, you know, in well, France, sure. yeah, Italy. I know. I, I so, so, in, so in this culture... If you look at how many, how many, how many um, producers uh, show up in a film, in a Chinese film, it, it, to these guys, no, there is no investor in Chinese cinema that is solely that solely does films. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's it's a very it's a very much industry of vanity, and the way that I think it, 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 a lot of investors, a lot of rich businessmen, they just want their name in a movie, hmm. in a film, um, and in a way, yes, I'm not sure if this the term state owned. I mean, we're hanging on too much to the word state-owned because there are no real, you know, really state-owned um, um, uh, state-owned enterprises, complete state-owned enterprises in, in China anymore, right? Well, technically so no, but, are... but unofficially, yes. I well, mean, yes. Everything is still state-owned in China. Technically. But, I mean, these are still these are still companies that, you know, have to produce profits and things like that. So I don't, I'm not sure why, how this is particularly different um uh, than than you know say Huayi brothers or say uh party bona getting on the stock exchange mm. well we'll have to wait and see you know how how it pans out uh, but uh yeah and the thing is shanghai the shanghai media group they're very big they run yeah. the they also run the shanghai film festival so and they they tend to put their names on big movies by being a smaller investor they're not major investors yeah. um but they they have their hand in a lot of films just like the article said so the fact that they have their hand in a lot of big films, but without having the real, true financial stake, 
you know, not having to put like 200 million RMB into a film, that that helps stop prices. You know, that's good publicity. Maybe. I don't know. I would say investor beware. <laughs> yes, right. I would say invest in like Huayi or Bona instead of yeah. these guys. But I don't know anything about stocks. I'm not, there's not hard money or whatever that show is called. So uh, I'm not going <laughs> to advise people on yeah, mad money. To invest right? in. Yeah, Kramer. mad money. There you yeah. go. Um, all right. Uh, another bit of news, uh, some, some movie news now coming from our favorite film news site, Film Biz Asia. Uh, this article from yesterday, November 27th by Patrick Frader. Um, he says, uh, pie's Asian slice is bigger by half. Um, so apparently some results came out a little bit earlier saying that, uh, they, the, the film, the new Ang Lee film, which we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, the life of pie was estimated to make somewhere around 17.5 million in Asia. And they've now readjusted that. Uh, they said the film actually grossed more like 23.5 million. Um, and so it surpassed that original estimate uh, by quite a bit. Um, so the film, you know, doing pretty well, I, I guess. Uh, uh, surprised by these results, Kevin? Or, uh, I mean, we, we've kind of had uh, pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good marketing here in Hong Kong. So, you know, it's Ang Lee. He carries a, you know, the, the both the Hollywood label and uh, the, the fact that he's a, you know, an Asian director. So, what are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, um, in America, uh, the the number was surprising. It made thirty mil um, over five day Thanksgiving weekend, which apparently it, it surprised a lot in Hollywood because it's a it's a it's a director who hasn't really proven himself commercially. Um, the films he made, um, the money they made were really because of word of mouth, not because they were they were commercially appealing. So that there was kind of a risk uh, when it comes to American grosses. But actually in, in Taiwan and Asia, he was quite he's already quite a big name. I mean, Lust Caution was very, very su- successful in, uh, in Asia, made a lot of money. Um, and no one remembers the Woodstock movie. <laughs> so. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not. Nobody wants that. to remember the Hulk. Right. I, I like the Hulk. You know, Hulk is good. But no, people might remember him for, you know, uh, Crouching Tiger, of course, and uh, and uh, Less Caution, of course. Both films did very well, and he's one of the biggest directors, uh, one of the best known names in Asia. Well, let's be so, fair. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was pretty much despised in Hong Kong until Hollywood showed it some love, and then uh, yes, everybody yes, flipped and, and loved it. That is true, but... but that that's when Ang Lee got respect, and then Lust Caution, of course, uh, further and Brokeback Mountain, of course, uh, yeah. further that, further those though that the name, and so so Ang Lee is actually um, a, quite a big brand, and his name was sold the film very well here. It did very well in China, especially because the IMAX uh, print only had one week, sh- uh, one week, because um, la- uh, what you might call it? Uh, back back to nineteen forty two, the new Feng Xiaogang movie um, will take over all the IMAX screens uh, starting tomorrow. So um, everyone knew that. Life of Pi only had one week in IMAX, and shows were sold out pretty much days in advance. Um, and also, of course, it did very well in China, where word of mouth. There's, I have seen, I haven't seen one negative review of the film on Weibo uh, right now for Life of Pi. So it's very, very well loved here, uh, at least in this region, um, in Hong Kong and in China, and I, I think in Taiwan. So, so um, it's both you know critically acclaimed and a film done by a director who is critically acclaimed. So it's no no surprise it would do this well. All right, well, we're going to be talking about the film in a little bit more detail for our West Screen pick in just a little bit. Um, final bit of news, uh, Kevin, you've got uh, some thoughts for us on the Golden Horse Awards. Yes, uh, I'm not sure how many uh, 
if you follow my live blog. But yes, the Golden Horse Award, one of the biggest uh, Chinese, greater China, one of the biggest film awards in the greater China region, uh, held their 49th edition uh, this past weekend. And it was very much um, an even even race. Um, some of the bigger favorites like GFBF, the Taiwan Romance, and um, what's the other one? Mystery, that by Lo Ye kind of um, came out with disappointing results. Instead, it was Johnny Toe's Life Without Principle and Gao Chun Xu's uh, Beijing Blues that came out on top with three awards each. Um, very interesting results because um, Beijing Blues is uh, the docudrama uh, about uh, crime in Beijing, petty crime in Beijing. Um, won only Best Editing and... Um, sorry, let me look at this. Won Best Editing and Best... Best something... Oh my god. You're going to cut this out, right? I don't know, am I? Let me check. So they won... <laughs> it should have won Best Fiction, right? Because we all know there's no actual crime in Beijing. <laughs> no, no, it, it's 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 actually it's a state-approved film, so it's actually very good. But anyway, by at the end of the night, no one expected it to win because at that point, when um when the major awards came, uh, it had only won best film editing and best cinematography. So um instead at that point, people were wait were looking forward to Life Without Principle winning because it had won best actor for Lao Ching, Lao Ching Wan, his first uh, Golden Horse Award, and best director Johnny Toe. Um, and also won Best Original Screenplay. So everyone was looking at it to take the top award when Beijing Blues was announced the best film. Um, but actually, uh, Johnny Toe isn't the loser of the night because actually Milky Way, also uh, their, their film um, Motorway, also won Best Action. So actually, they are the winner of the night. Uh, instead, the loser of the night was Taiwan Cinema in general because um, they only won four awards in an in a, in a, in award ceremony that takes place on Taiwan, uh, in Taiwan, on Taiwan soil, only, they only won four awards, three of which the, the nominees were all Taiwanese. Hmm. So it only won really on fair ground, so to speak, and won award. And that was Best Actress uh, Gui Lun Mei, or as uh, Kozo from Love HK Film would call, Gui. 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 Yeah, she, she won uh, Best Actress for GFBF, a film that many Taiwanese film fans were hoping would, would take, the, take the night. But uh, I only won one award all night, so so uh, it actually come. It's actually um, led to some pretty um, big reaction on Weibo. A lot of people are wondering why why mainland Chinese cinema has come and taken all the awards from Taiwanese film industry. Was it really that week of a year in Taiwan? Um, there are even some politicians in Taiwan who are looking to uh, who are screaming for the awards to be scrapped and and uh, be replaced by a new award that only rewards Taiwanese cinema. Um, so it's a very interesting year this year. Lots of surprises. Um, I don't know because, yeah. So, but anyone anyone wants to read back uh, and 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 uh, see what happened uh, last Saturday night, come check out my blog, the Golden Rock, uh, where I I live blogged the entire event, all four hours of it. So yeah, please um, read back and uh, catch up to what happened. Hmm. Uh, I believe Ken in the chat room has asked. Uh about the acceptance speech that they do um are they allowed to you know actors like clouching wanna do they do it in cantonese or is that considered uh sort of a no-no it's no they all they all spoke mandarin mm -hmm. on stage uh even when even when 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 ching ka Lok, he won best action choreography for motorway he went up and spoke really really terrible mandarin but he still spoke mandarin uh all the whole time because um just a sound of respect i mean you're chinese 
um, at least your ethnicity is Chinese, and you go to uh, Taiwan and you stand up on the stage, and uh, you can't. I mean, of course, Bowie Zhang, uh, Eric Zhang's daughter, she was the host, so she speaks fluent. She's like a very famous host in uh, TV host in, in Taiwan, so she spoke. She speaks both Cantonese and, and Mandarin fluently. So if she had to translate, yes, she would have been available. But yeah, all the Hong Kong guests um, went on stage and, and spoke in uh, spoke in Mandarin. Uh, the only people who didn't spoke uh, didn't speak in their native language were the the winners of. Um, Best visual effects for Flying Swords of Tires, Flying Swords of Dragon Gate, because one was Korean, uh, there was an American, and there was a uh, Singaporean. It was, it, neither of those three actually spoke any Mandarin, mm. so it was a, it was like a bad bar joke. An American, <laughs> <laughs> an American, a uh, 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 Korean, and a guy from Hong Kong went on the war stage. Mm. Yeah, so those are the only people who didn't speak in their native language. I think, well, everyone else spoke Mandarin. I see. All right. So, yeah, if you want to catch up on uh, any of the results of those awards, go head over to the uh, Golden Rocks blog and check it out. For now, I think it's time to move on and start actually talking about some movies. So, yeah. let me play this. Alright, so we've got one East Screen film for this week, and that is the latest Hong Kong gangster feature triad from director daniel chan now this is not the the teen idol young heartthrob singer slash actor in the feel 100 percent uh uh web series uh daniel chan right no 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 yeah it's not <laughs> um so this is a different daniel chan than some of you out there might know and recognize um so kevin tell us the breakdown of uh triad sure um Triad is the second feature-length film from director Daniel Chan. Well, technically, because his first film was Cross, uh, which he had made in 2010, and then um, the film was reshot twice by five other directors. So technically, it's not really his film. But this is his first solo film uh, produced by Ng Kin Hong, uh, better known for producing films like uh, Lang Kui Fong and uh, Lang Kui Fong 2. Well, you mentioned that, that, that Cross had like five different uh, different directors. Didn't this film have like 10 writers or something <laughs> yes this we have eight writers for some reason but we'll talk about about that in a in a bit but yes the daniel chance uh this is his first time really solo directing i guess uh directing a film that didn't get taken away from him uh the film it goes the 80s way of using uh, all the actors real names uh for the characters so i'm not even gonna bother with character names uh william chan plays william a a young um young man whose whose mother uh, you know is uh, it's a fruit vendor on lady street and uh one day um she is uh bullied by by some triad some debt collector and uh in trying to defend his mother uh william gets beaten up but um good thing is his friend derek played by derek zung um is connected to the triad and calls uh brother patrick played by patrick tam out to help them out and um and to to repay uh it, it, to I guess uh, show his gratitude, um, William decides to join Patrick um, to help protect his mother to to make some money and uh, and of course that the beginning of his triad road. Uh, from there, of course, uh, he goes through the standard you know tri the the standard triad 
try a young Guazai kind of uh, cliches. He gets in the first fight. He kills people. But um, of course, he's a smart one. So he's the one that goes to university. While Derek is the um, the womanizer. Uh, and the third guy in the gang, played by Edward Trey, who is Edward, uh, he's kind of the, the rough rough and tough, the, the fighter of the group. And a trio kind of fight their way up the ladder until, um, until, um, <clears throat> until, of course, William goes to university and they split up. But after all that, after all that, after William graduates from university, he comes back and finds that um, it is time for them to really step up in the triad, the gang, uh, and fight for leadership. Uh, but the thing stopping them is Sister Irene, played by Irene Wan, who is um, one of the top four members of the gang and, and, um, and who, who's, whose own protege is played by Deep Aang. Uh, they are really the only thing that's stopping them. Uh, and... By the end of the film, uh, Deep and William uh, face off each other in a in the triad election, trying to 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 take the top spot uh, of the gang. Um, Daniel Chan, um, you know, it's good that he fin- he finally has a film to call his own, a uh, film that 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 he can say he directed. But it's too bad that it's such a whole hum film. Um, the promo tagline promises that Triad is a film that would that would reinvent the genre. You know, bring bring the genre to a new level or take it to a modern place, but um, it doesn't deliver on that at all. Um, I don't think there's even one original element in the film. Uh, pretty much, I've seen everything here before, from like Goodfellas and and, and Young and Dangerous and uh, all the other triad films and even the gangster films from 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 Hollywood and uh, Western cinema. Perhaps the only thing original or the only thing that's kind of refreshing is um, Irene Wang as the um, the, the, the one of the top sisters in the gang and um, her character is very interesting because she has this past with Patrick Tam but she ends up marrying one of the other top members of the gang um, and of course in that sense she gets a lot of respect and and um, later on she has a different motivation uh, and, and when Deep kind of supersedes her authority that's really interesting stuff but that really isn't uh, quite well developed uh, and she doesn't really Irene Man doesn't really have enough to do um, honestly, I would rather watch the Patrick Tam story than the William Chang story because Patrick Tam, his character is one of the top guys, but he's very unambitious. He spends all day at the, the fruit market, hang out at the fruit market. Um, he, he's very loyal to his brothers, but he's not the ambitious type that wants to fight his way to the top. Even though the film suggests that in the past, he's a lot different. He's a much uh, more impressive, I guess, gangster so to speak. And that that's actually a really good story. And that um and he stole really steals the film whenever he's on he's he's on screen. So he, he was really the best thing in the film and I would have loved to see see his story instead. Um Transmedia Alert. Transmedia Alert. Uh the film was the way the, they promote the film was uh using the election storyline uh, in the third act to and and um trying to raise raise awareness by expanding the film uh the election storyline out to to the public, you know, with um, things like uh, um, <clears throat> election videos, you know, like campaign videos, uh, campaign poster posted all over Hong Kong, um, a, a, a Facebook page for the, for the election and things like that. So it's very interesting to see the producers uh, and the marketers use this kind of approach. Um, and this is an approach, this is what we talk about transmedia, expanding the story universe, um, letting people interact with the film. So that's that's very interesting uh, way to sell the film. Uh, it's too bad that it was used on this film. That's the only really problem. Uh, the film is category free, uh, and they the 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 
the team, the marketing team, used the category free as a selling point, but it really felt forced in because um, only the triad ceremonies in the film and the curse words that the people speak really justify the category free. The violence isn't all that much. There's no nudity whatsoever. So it felt like they made the category 2B film and just forced it to become category free. So category free fans, you're going to be very disappointed by what you see here. Um, I, I've been kind of negative on the film, but really it's an okay genre exercise. Um, the stars are okay. Uh, when you watch William, you wish that he would be in the Young and Dangerous remake instead of Him Law. And that's saying, that's saying not very much, but you know, that still says something about William Chan uh, in the role. Um, as, a, as a genre exercise, it's okay. It's not that bad, but it's not really that good. Um, which is why I'm confounded why something like this needed eight writers. You know, it's not like it, it really takes the genre to anywhere new. You know, yes, the, the kids, the, the, the gangster, they all get rich and then they, they have to rise and fall. It's really a typical story. So I don't know why this story needs so many writers. It's not particularly original. So um, that's the only thing that's really baffling. Otherwise, um, it, it's okay. It's worth seeing, I guess, but um, not really worth trying to chase, trying to seek it out. You know, if it's available, then then by all means, check it out. So yeah, I would say... Um, it's a TV it, definitely. Uh, Paul? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I was kind of mixed going into this. I'm not a big fan of uh, William Chan um, or really any of the the young guys who were, you know, Derek, Derek Zhang's okay. Um, I, I wasn't, like Derek Zhang. I wasn't really attracted, though, to, you know, the, the core group that they had kind of put together. And and I guess part of me is spoiled, you know. I mean, uh, when when I think of of a group of gangsters, you know, you go back to the Young and Dangerous and Eakin and Jordan and uh, and those guys, and you know, some somehow that 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 chemistry worked. And I I don't know if they're I, I know they're trying to find that dynamic again and, and go for the reinvention, and um, I don't know if they really succeeded here. Um, but I wasn't expecting them to. That being said, uh, I ended up liking this a lot more than I thought I would. Uh, it is a it is a standard triad film though, and it follows very obvious plot cliches of the genre. And part of me started thinking as I was watching this that this is actually more of an homage to the genre than actually a film in and of itself. And you mentioned that it had like eight writers. It's it's really like you got eight people in a room together to sit down and say what was your favorite part of any gangster movie, <laughs> right? And e each person told their favorite part and they just threw it together and had a script, right? Because it's just a series of, you know, kind of vignettes that you've seen done in other films, really. <coughs> um, excuse me. Primarily, it blends um, aspects of election and gongwu in terms of what it does kind of narratively. Um, but then you've got elements going back to Young and Dangerous and, you know, a lot of other stuff, and there were a couple times when actually they made William Chan try and look a lot like Eakin, and he kind of pulled it off in, in, in a few of the scenes, and a few of the shots. Uh, it was really kind of kind of weird. So, yeah, I, I I'm going to give, I'm going to give Daniel Chan a little more credit, and think that the William Chan storyline about him, you know, getting rich and do all that, I, w I would say that he's, he's more modeling after Goodfellas. Say, well, like a Hong Kong per perhaps, but I mean, it is an update. And so they're talking about, you know, the, the stock market and, and real estate investment and, you know, things like that, that weren't on the everybody's lips, at least in quite the same 
manner back in, you know, the, the, the 90s. Um, so it is very cultural for the times, but in terms of the plot hooks and the things that happen to these characters and their relationships and their relationships with women and the, the rivalries that, that spring up, I mean, all of that we've seen in, you know, a dozen other places in, in different films. And this kind of, you know, it's a collage of, of those things, if you will. Um, but I agree, Patrick Tam really stole the show. And, you know, I would love to see uh, a sequel or a prequel or something that was really focused just on him. And uh, reminds me of kind of Anthony Wong's character a little bit, um, you know, Tai Fei. Um, who was kind of ambiguous in, in, in some of the Young and Dangerous films, but he he ended up getting like his own spinoff and, and you know, he, he became... Taifei never got his own spinoff. Yeah, he did. Oh, which one is that? The the legendary Taifei. Oh, whoops. Oh, yeah, did yeah. he? Okay, I never heard of that one. But no, he yeah, he was he was very much a villain in part two and then became yeah became a good guy yeah, in the following. Yeah, and, and then, of course, you've got Irene Wan, who's... I, she's not really, you know, channeling uh, Sandra M's you know, sister character from the series, but it's, it's a similar kind of thing. Cause she's somehow been through the meat grinder and she's gotten respect, uh, to this certain level uh, in the brotherhood. And, and that's rare for women. Um, so there's there, there's that aspect. Um, unfortunately they kind of shot themselves in the foot with the main character, or should I say they hacked themselves? Hmm. Uh, um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to get into too much spoiler territory, but it's really predictable. Um, but despite all that, I did enjoy it much more than I thought. Maybe it's been a bad year for movies. Um, so, yeah. But there's nothing... I mean, the Category 3 is really... It's kind of like the same reason that the Chow Yun-Fat movie, Triads, the Inside Story, was Category 3. <laughs> right? It's primarily because there's ritual that they don't want young kids to see. And you've seen the ritual. Go watch Once a Gangster. Right? It's just people sitting around in their underwear doing the blood dipping and taking the oath kind of a thing. Um, and there is a there is a scene where a guy, one of the characters, um, gets a pretty bad chop. Um, but that's about it, really. I mean, well, that's really too, that's ultimately just to be stuff anyway. Yeah, um, it's really just the curse words, I think. I don't remember the language being that prominent, but there was definitely language yeah. in there. There's definitely a few words. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, for for triad films. Um, I would say that I was surprised by the production values better than I expected for this film. Um, and that's just saying that right now in, in the give that, that it's not, you know, it's not an amazingly beautiful film or anything, or, you know, or artistically in, in that sense. But in the environment which Hong Kong cinema now finds itself, when you think of, you know, a gangster movie from somebody like Wong Jing or, or somebody else, you're not thinking, you're really thinking like, you know, low budget production values, right? Like, um, what was the Nick Chung Mong Kok one? Um, uh, one night, oh, no, uh, to live and die in Live and die in Kok, yeah. Um, where it's, you know, they're like doing stuff on video and, and After Effects, right? Um, so this really looked kind of polished and, and looked kind of nice in a lot of places. And, <clears> and, uh, I'd say you could do a lot worse for a gangster film. So definitely TV it if you like the genre. Right, let us move on. Talk about our West Screen film. East Screen, West Screen. All right, so our West Screen film for the week. Um, although, I don't know, 
could you consider it an East Screen film? No, uh, the, all the money's from Hollywood. So yeah. it's, it's definitely you got Ang Lee. It's like half the cast is uh, is uh, Asian or Indian or, you know. Um, it, it's kind of one of those weird hybrid areas again. Uh, but that is the famous film Life of Pi from the famous novel uh, by Yen Martel of the same name. Uh, of course, directed by Ang Lee. Um, starring, uh, if I can say his name, Siraj Sharma uh, as the... the title character of Pi, although Pi is played by multiple characters uh, at different ages throughout the film. Um, basically, it tells the story, <coughs> excuse me, tells the story of Pi Patel, who's an immigrant um, from India, who's, um, when you first meet him, he's living in Canada, and he's being approached by this uh, young author who he has been introduced to him, and uh, he's been told to get this, this, uh, Pai Patel to sort of tell him his life story uh, and that it would make a great book. So he convinces Mr. Patel to sort of relay back his story. And so we get flashback. We go back to uh, his early childhood in India um, where his parents uh, run a zoo. And so he sort of grows up um, in this zoo environment and uh, it gets kind of spiritual. He starts as, as he's coming of age, he starts, um, you know, inquiring about different faiths, and he's raised as a Hindu by his mother. Um, he learns about Christianity from a local church. He also learns about Islam, and it, it's it starts to get into you know sort of this very spiritual notion about belief and and what you believe. Um, but then his world comes crashing down because uh, just when he meets, um, you know, his first love, his father decides that they need to close the zoo sell off the animals, and move overseas to Canada. <coughs> Excuse me. And so um, this sort of sets the stage for what you're, ex you know, what, what the book is known for and what you're expecting to see, which is during the, the ocean voyage uh, to Canada, uh, the ship uh, encounters a very serious storm, and Pi is ultimately uh, thrown overboard, um, and he is uh, basically stranded on a boat, with a tiger, um, and uh, that kind of sets up the, uh, I guess, the main tension of, of the story. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, there's not really much more to say about the film than that. It, it At that point, it really becomes sort of a survival film. Um, if you've seen films like the Tom Hanks film Castaway, um, there's another one that I've got in my brain, the name escapes me. Um, the, these kind of, you know, these kind of films, it, it kind of becomes a one-man show uh, at, at these points. And it's really surprising that uh, the director decided to go with an unknown young actor um, to sort of carry this film, because he has to carry it uh, for a considerable amount of time. And uh, surprisingly successful. I think that, that uh, the, this new guy, um, Siraj, did a really great job uh, for, for what you know, the, the part that he had. Of course, uh, Irfan Khan is wonderful in, you know, I mean, uh, pretty much everything that he does. Um, but yeah, I did not know the story going in. I know this book's been around for over a decade now, and it's very famous. Um, but I've not read it. I'm, I might go back and read it now because I'm intrigued after seeing the movie. But um, I, I didn't know anything about the story going in except guy in a boat with a tiger, right? Um, what I saw in the trailers. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, amazing film, 
and not really just for the story. The story is already very well known. That's one of the selling points. But lots of visual spectacle, right? Lots of uh, just masterful painting of environments and, uh, of course, lots of CG and some pretty amazing animal CG. I mean, I, there were points when I was wondering where does the real animal stop and the CG animal begin? I mean, they've come a long way from Gladiator, you know, several years back. But, um, you know, honestly, um, I have to say this. I did prefer the early life of Pi more than the sort of the main survival story. Um, and that just might be me, but I found that, you know, the, the young boy growing up and being inquisitive, inquisitive and asking these questions and learning life lessons from different people, I found I really enjoyed that part. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the, um, what was the Judy Dench movie, uh, Best Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? Uh, a few weeks ago we reviewed that. Mm -hmm. um, and and it gave me a, a similar sense, that, that beginning part. There, there was a little bit of whimsy, there was a little bit of humor in there. And, it, you know, it really seemed to be presenting some interesting characterizations and asking some interesting questions. Um, then when you get to the, when you get to Pi being stranded with, with the tiger, um, it kind of shifts gears. Although it is still somewhat inquisitive, it becomes a much more visual story at, at a lot of points. Um, you might say it's a bit more self-reflective. And by the time you get to the end, well, then it kind of throws you for a loop and it starts to make you think. And I'm still trying to wrap my brain around the ending. If you've read the book, you know uh, what the ending is. I don't want to spoil it here. Um, but I didn't think... It's weird. I kind of came away from it like I came away from, from Andy Lau's movie Running on Karma, which when I saw it in the theater, I didn't really like it. And then as I walked away from the theater, I kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And the more I thought about it, the more I liked it. And now Running on Karma is like one of my favorite movies. Um, but I think part of, part of the reason is because it did things that were beyond my expectation. And it got me thinking. And when I'm thinking, maybe I'm not enjoying. And so the thinking part replaces the part of my brain that enjoys, you know, stuff. And so then I have to go back and process. And so maybe the process takes me out of the enjoyment mode for a while until I realize, wow, that was really something that got me thinking and was really very interesting. Um, so I'm still undergoing that process. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it. And I'm still not sure if, I mean, it's a great film, but I don't know if I'd want to see it again. Um, but the, the more I get away from it, the more I start thinking I do want to see it again and possibly read the book. So I'll also say I saw it in 3D, and honestly, I was glad I did, and I'm surprised that I'm saying that. Uh, I didn't have an option to see it in 2D because there were no other 2D screenings, so I was kind of forced into uh, a 3D screening, but I was really glad I did because I think the, the visuals play very well. And I haven't really felt that way about a 3D non-cartoon film since Avatar. Um, so I think they did a nice job with the 3D. And I, I was pleased with the 3D. It's, it's really, there are parts of it that's like, you know, like, like a painting more than anything else. Um, and there are a couple nice, really nice moments where they use the 3D in some nice ways. Um, so yeah, I'd say it's a see it. Uh, still not sure 
I really liked it, but I think it's a film that needs to be seen. Uh, Kevin. Yes. Your yes. thoughts. My thoughts. Um, well, I'm again to the, the, the faith expert and try to decipher the film a little bit for you, Paul, in a bit. But um, yes, yeah, so this, this is Ang Lee's first big budget spectacle film since Hulk. And uh, I liked Hulk because all the all the uh, artistry involved in it. I, I really like the way he used visuals and how it's really a Shakespearean story that's more than just about a guy who turns into a green green monster. Just like this movie, just it's more than just about a boy and a tiger on a boat. Um, this is his first film actually in his career without his longtime producer uh, slash writer, James Seamus. Um, but it's very interesting um, to see to wonder, you start to wonder what kind of stuff that, you know, James Shame has brought to uh, Ang Lee's film that is missing here. And I haven't figured it out yet. So I don't know, but I, I guess I'm going to start to looking, look, look in the past with this. Um, the, the new framing device of the story, uh, which is not in the book. I haven't read the book, but, you know, I read about Wikipedia. So that, that means I, mean, I, I know as much as I need to know. Um, the new framing device using the interview is very well done. It's, it's very w- good way to frame the story, I think, uh, adds a lot of uh, context. Um, the story in the middle, because the story is really three parts, you can say. Um, and the middle part is the boat and the tiger. Uh, and that's, you know, really nice bit of magical realism. Um, the 3D is really great, like you said. Um, it's shot, actually shot on James Cameron's uh, Pace Fusion camera. This is the this is the uh, the camera that that James Cameron, I guess, helped develop to make Avatar. So this is um, it's a very good use of 3D here. Um, yes, it does seem to be cast away on a boat, uh, but it's about so much more. Um, the in the, from the first act, the first 40 minutes of the film, it's very very clear that it's a, a story about faith. Even the stuff on the boat is a story about faith. Um, and, and at first, I, I thought, when I first got out left the film, I thought, this is a film that's just kind of like a faith propaganda movie. Not really propaganda, but it's a film that, that, that promotes faith, that tells you you need faith, that the importance of faith. Um, and I was a little, bit of turn, a little bit turned off by that. But this, the great thing about this film is that I realized it, it's so open to so many different interpretations or, you know, multiple multiple interpretations and all of them are right that de- and the the your interpretation depends on how you see the idea of faith and religion um a cynical person like me has a very i'm not going to ruin what my what my actual interpretation is it, it has a very um how do i say a very pessimistic view of faith because that that's my that's where i'm coming from but I could actually go with um, maybe a, a Christian or someone that's very religious and they come out feeling feeling more reinforced about their faith or feeling more reinforced or feeling more secure about needing faith in their lives. And we would both be right. So it, and that's really the brilliant thing about the story itself or the, the, the what, what, you know, Yamatel or even, you know, screwwriter David McGee or, or Ang Lee, that they, they, they they open this story up to so many different interpretations. All and all will be right. The only absolute thing about this film is that there are multiple interpretations of the film. And anyone trying to claim they have the right interpretation will be wrong because the film intentionally lets you think about it in multiple ways. And that totally depends on where you're coming from. And I think that's really the brilliant part of the film. And, and if I accept my own interpretation of the film, I think it's it's a really, really, really powerful story. And to me, it's really powerful. It really hit me, I think. Um, 
and, and yeah, I, I'm going to watch it again this weekend. I'm going to watch an IMAX 3D uh, on Saturday and see how much greater the effects are because it's, it's really a great spectacle movie, a uh, visual spectacle uh, movie. Um, Ang Lee, he's a very, in, he's a more inventive director visually than, than we people often give him credit for just because he's known for, you know, dramas like Sense and Sensibility or, you know, uh, Brokeback Mountain doesn't mean he, he's actually a very good visual director. Um, you see, if you're like a film guy, you see that Ang, Ang Lee intentionally messes with the aspect ratio of the film multiple times. Uh, at one point during the flying fish sequence, the film goes wider to 2.35. And at one point, the film actually takes on a, a vertical frame because there's a one shot that's exactly the cover of the book. So it actually changed the aspect ratio of the film just to make the, the visual look like the, the cover of the book. And that's the kind of, you know, visual director we're working with here. And, and it's quite a brilliant film. So yeah, it's, it's definitely one of the best films of the year. Um, I would say see it and uh, see it in 3D. So um, yeah, Paul, did, I'm not sure if what I said about the faith thing, I'm not sure if that helped you. No, that, that was exactly my feeling that, you know, I, I have a certain... My, I have my own idea about faith, and I think anybody going in with, you know, whether you're Christian, whether you're atheist, whether you're you're Muslim, you'll get a different reading on this, and and you'll read the end differently too. I think that's yes. that's the the very interesting thing about this. I mean, um, in, in that, and you and you're right. I mean, there there is no really right way to read this. I think. Uh, it really is going to depend on how you see faith um, or, or your own belief system in regards to what's being portrayed uh, in, in this film. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm still processing, but I'm, I, I have a feeling I'm going to end up liking this film a lot more uh, as time goes on than I did when I left the theater. The, the great thing is that the film works on its own level as the a superficial level. It's a great adventure story. Um, actually, while I was leaving the theater, I heard two women talking behind me, you know, saying, I don't understand what the what third, why they need the first 40 minutes, you know, there's it, it nothing to do with the story. So for them, they enjoyed the film as an adventure. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, you, you two should go live to watch 2012 3D or something. <laughs> um, but but we were, I'm like I'm like wow this just hit me because there's not a movie about a boy and a tiger. This is a story about faith and to me what and how I see faith and how I interpret what faith is and to me that's much more powerful than a boy and a tiger. But the fact that it works on both those levels is really uh, that makes it so such a wonderful film. I think it works for the I'm not sure if it works for you know your daughter, but I think it's a it's a film that you know a whole family can go watch. Even if they cut out the first last the ending, I think um I think it's a really great family film that can be discussed. Mm. You know, I think yeah, I, I think it's a yeah, I think it's a great 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 film. <laughs> it also makes me beg the question a little bit too of, you know, can actors named Khan do no wrong, and <laughs> I'm waiting for the the ultimate matchup. You know, you get uh, um, you get Salman Khan, you get Shah Rukh Khan, you get Ifran Khan, all in the same movie, right? <laughs> uh, it would be a blockbuster. It'd be such a huge smash hit. Um, there are a lot of cons in yeah. Bollywood, uh, and uh, you could play this. Khan! Um, but yeah, I, I, I do have to give both director Ang Lee credit and, 
uh, again, kudos to um, Suraj Sharma, you know, to because, <clears throat> I mean, as you said, this was a pretty, it was pretty daring for him to put this on uh, an unknown, you know, and, and to have him carry the film for, for as much as he, as he does. Yeah. Uh, and, and successfully so. I mean, he, he, he made the right choice, but you, you would think that with a film based on a book that's already quite popular, you would have gone with, um, you know, somebody like a Dev Patel or somebody who's already got a little bit of clout out there. Um, well, Toby Maguire was supposed to play the interviewer. Was he? Yeah, but he actually, uh, Dan Angley intentionally took him out because he didn't think that he needed, um, that role needed a, a big actor in it. Yeah. Well, so what was up with Depardieu, though? I mean, come on. He he's like he's like just there for, you know, not even uh, two minutes of screen time, and it was just kind of weird. He he he's what what people in China call him. Uh, he just walking around look, buying soy sauce. He's out there <laughs> to buy sauce because because uh, the, the 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 phrase comes from the um, the CCTV street interviews, and um, essentially people look like you're just walking by buying soy sauce and get caught in a street interview. And that's kind of like what what Gerard Depardieu <laughs> is doing, just buying soy sauce, yeah. and stopping by. Like oh, I'll find some sugar and now stop by the set and do my cameo. Yeah. Um. All right. Yeah. So I think we both uh, give it a very high recommendation. So get out and watch it. All right. I think it is time for this. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Right. Um, don't have any comments from our last program, and uh, we don't have a video pick this week. So I think that's going to do it, folks. Uh, if you would like to be part of the show, of course, head over to our website. That is uh, concast.com, and you can uh, drop us some comments over there. Or check us out on iTunes. Uh, you know, uh, Leave us a five-star review if you like the show, or leave us a one-star review if you don't, but tell us what you'd like to see changed. Uh, we'd be happy to hear any feedback you'd like to provide. Twitter, you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast for show updates. Uh, twitter.com slash foxlore, uh, if you want my uh, very sparse tweetings uh, these days. I'm so busy. And, of course, twitter.com slash thegoldenrock to follow Kevin and keep up with all the film news that uh, he comes across and tweets about. And uh, if you want to hit us up on email, that is uh, gmail, that is eastscreen at gmail.com. You can drop us a question, a comment, a uh, short review, Put it in audio format if you like. Keep it short and sweet, and we might just play it here on the show. And uh, we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash eastswests. Uh, you can drop us some feedback over there. And Google+, Plus, as if you're going to be in Hong Kong, passing through Hong Kong, and you'd like to come out for one of our famous Hong Kong movie nights, uh, drop me a line over on Google+, and I can get you hooked up in the event group. You can also catch us on Stitcher, listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your WebOS. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. Find it in your app store or at Stitcher.com. Stitcher Smart Radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for their support of our little show. Additional thanks go out to Rob Govers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Rosh Chen of LoveHKFilm.com for helping to organize our movie nights here in Hong Kong. Uh, the K-Man, Kevin, for sticking with me for 132 
soon to be 133 episodes. And of course, you the listeners. We love that you're out there listening, and uh, we like doing the show because of that. Next episode, 133. What are we going to talk about, Kevin? Uh, we can, for East Screen, we can talk about the Steffi Bosco film, uh, Love in Time. And uh, I, I might catch the new Brad Pitt uh, film, uh, Killing Them Softly, from the director of uh, The Assassination of Jesse James. Mm. And uh, I, I, is that cartoon uh, animated film out, The Guardians, Legend of the Guardians? Yeah, Rise of the Guardians. Rise of the yes, Guardians. That's out there already. Yeah, I think I might try and catch that uh, with the wife if we have time. So uh, um, I don't think we're going to catch Red Dawn, right? I thought about I, it. And the more I thought about it, the more I didn't want to think about it. Um, <laughs> it's over on iTunes already, too. So I don't know. No, that's the old one. Oh, is it? the? Yeah, that's right. That's the old one. Um, I don't know. But yeah, um, I, I'm not going to bother. So sorry. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to give that a pass. Um, the old one was classic for its redneckery. Um, you know, good old boys out in the woods. Um, and this one will be known for the redneckery that it induced... <laughs> on Twitter. <coughs> Don't make me laugh, please. Uh, <laughs> ah, sorry. Um, so yeah, uh, I think that uh, we'll also probably throw in uh, a video pick. We haven't done one of those in a while. Uh, with the selected choice being my wife is 18. Since we're getting the uh, sequel uh, next week, and that will be on episode 134 in two weeks. So uh, we'll probably talk about that next week. So... Uh, Grab a hold of your old DVD and dust it off if you got it. Uh, if not, try and get one because uh, it's got a sequel and we're excited. So, yeah, uh, all of that and much more on our next show. Until then, this is East Screen, West Screen, wishing you good viewing, and we'll see you next week. See you next week, everybody. Bye.